previously on Popping Collars. So we 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 did the same uh, we did the same it trail. Small, it was a very small. <laughs> okay, part. listen. But you had a bunch right. of children with, with, with some teens with some teens. See now that's the and that's the degree of difficulty. I took <laughs> teenagers with me. See, so you got to push Justin Pet, but I had to take teenagers on the Camino. I, I have um, to myself. I, I, I <laughs> I'm out. so uh, so we did the last one. <laughs> Welcome, to Poppin' Collars, the podcast that lives in the space between meaning and culture. My name is Greg Knight. I am the director of Children Youth Ministries at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. With me are my co-hosts, Liz Easton. Liz, where are you? What are you doing these days? I'm Greg. Um, I'm coming to you from Omaha, Nebraska, where I'm the canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Nebraska. And coming off of a convention. That's right. We just finished our diocesan convention. We call it our annual council, which is a historical anomaly. They, we almost didn't get diocesan status 150 years ago because we stubbornly refused to call our council a convention. <laughs> nice. And we've held on to it ever since. Annual council sounds like there should be a king involved at some point. Though. Right. <laughs> um, Good job, Liz. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, also with us is Ricardo Avila. Ricardo, uh, where are you and what are you up to? Well, Greg, thank you. Uh, I got to say, uh, things are a little different for me than the last podcast. <laughs> I am now the rector of St. Luke's in Los Gatos, California, which is just, I think it's south of San Jose, while I live in San Mateo, which is about 45 minutes north. So I went from interim rector a few months ago to transition time, and now I am full-on rector. I've been there two weeks. It's beautiful. The people are lovely, and um, I've already, they've already got a sense of my personality from three sermons and a talk. So, Yay! <laughs> and uh, we have a special guest today, Alex Harrelson. Alex, where are hey, you? Hey. And tell us what you do. I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, I'd say go Vols, but we're really struggling with that this year. I uh, served for 14 years as a youth minister in the Episcopal Church, freelance filmmaker and uh, producer, director, and sound engineer for all sorts of TV and film stuffs around here. Thank you for being with us. This is our 74th episode, and the topic today is Stranger Things. Uh, This pop culture phenomenon began last year with the release of the first season when a young boy disappears and his mother and his friends must confront terrifying forces in order to find out what happened to him. Uh, The story continues with the release of season two this past week, where uh, it picks up again in the aftermath of a world turned upside down. Uh, I've long (laughs) held that Stranger Things, Stranger Things is what you get if John Carpenter had directed E.T. Um, Whoa. Wow. Right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great description, right? Um, but, but for a show with, with so much going on, I just, I wonder what connects with us as individuals. We should point out that we are a spoiler-filled podcast. Yeah. So we may drop <laughs> a few go. things over the course of this um, that may be spoilers for those who haven't seen all of season two. Alex, I'm going to start with you. Which uh, which storyline, any storyline from the show, 
has piqued your interest the most? And why do you think that particular storyline kind of pulled you in? I'm really drawn by Will's storyline, even though it's, especially in large part of first season, almost non-existent. Right. There's something about Will, and I don't want to, for anybody who hasn't finished through the, the two seasons, I don't want to you know spoil anything, but um, with with Will, it's this journey he's been on that um, he's been to this this very, very dark place, and he brings some of it back with him. When you go somewhere and you leave it, do you ever really leave all of it behind, for good or for bad? And I think that's true of a lot of things, innocent things and not so innocent things. For a show that involves groups and stories of groups doing things, Will is isolated so much. He's, his, yeah. his arc is usually an individual arc, which, is, which stands out in a show like this, I think. I, I feel like I just came out of like a nine hour movie in the, in the movie theaters. Right. Cause yeah. I watched the entire thing today from like 9 AM to 6 PM, just for you fans out there, no shower. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> no brushing that of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> you can smell it over the airwaves. But um, so I, I, so funny. I'm a little woozy from watching all of that. I don't think I've ever binge watched, binge watched an entire season of anything. And it's, it's a little sad, actually. I, I, I think it's, it's better to have this anticipation, maybe watch four episodes and then go on and et cetera. But whatever. I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I have all the ammo to talk about it here. And I won't give the spoiler away about how half the cast dies in the last episode. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. There's something about the police chief Hopper that I really like. Something about, you know, he loses his daughter when he's young and he never really heals from that. And in season two, especially, I think uh, Eleven becomes kind of a surrogate daughter to him. I don't think that's giving anything away from season one. I love how Steve was one of the jerks at the beginning of season one, and then he becomes one of the good guys. I don't know. I, just, I like that. It just made the show more human for me. Actually, So I thought Bob in season two, played by <laughs> Sean Astin, I thought he was going to turn out to be like a bad guy who seemed really, really yeah. nice and good. And I won't give it away, but the the, the nerd of all nerds kind of nice guy who loves Kenny Rogers really winds up being a hero, and I just love that. And it's, you know, it's it's a show about you know extraterrestrial supernatural things, but I, I love that people can change like that. Uh, Liz, is there a particular group or storyline that that you connect with on this show? Mm, I loved the friendship between all the kids, and especially how there was this very real experience of like being in middle school and learning how to be a good friend to each other and navigating all this social stuff and kind of falling in love for the first time alongside of this very supernatural, like strange environment that tests their, um, their kind of morality and their decision-making and really the extent to which they'll go to be friends with one another and finally, I agree with Ricardo about everything always, but um, also the <laughs> <laughs> um, Hopper and Eleven. Oh, that was such a sweet yeah. storyline because both of them are learning how to love mm-hmm. and how to trust. And um, they walk each other through that in a very tender way. And they also like the the thing about their relationship is that they've both experienced trauma in the role that they yes. perform in that relationship. <laughs> so Hopper having lost his daughter and 11, not really having that right father figure. And they kind of, they, they heal each other in that relationship. Yes. 
Yeah. I think it's interesting that Eleven, they kind of delve into Eleven experiencing loss that she never, I mean, like she never experienced it, but she did. And she mm-hmm. finds out later that she did. You know, how do you cope with that with no frame of reference? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you suddenly find out there was this thing that used to be there and it's not there and you you never even knew it personally. Yeah. Yeah. And there's kind of this PTSD thing with her story and is it will i'm forgetting all the yeah time. it's it's yeah. will yeah with both of them but like with 11 she definitely has trauma from her childhood that she's trying to deal with and then she's confronted with another girl who had the same trauma and they go about healing it in completely different ways and that was um one of the things i love about her character is just how brave she is and vulnerable at the same time. Like she always looks terrified before she does like some super fierce thing. And that she made a decision like, no, I'm going to heal this wound by being a good friend, yeah. not by killing people. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Like all of these things that we've talked about, um, it, it reminds me with the exception of Joyce and Will, you know, that kind of that desperate maternal instinct um, all of these are relationships that are they're sort of family relationships with surrogate families, you know, with sort of made made up families. Obviously, there's the kids, the D and D group, right? That that mirrors the Losers Club from it as as far as um, as far as the little kids are concerned. But even the teenagers have like their own kind of formed uh, family relationships and. Um, and, you know, just thinking of number eight and her sort of formed family uh, that she was able to put together. It just reminds me that I hear this I hear this term family thrown out a lot in churches. And I think that this is kind of what they're talking about. In my <laughs> ministry context in um, Nebraska, lots of our churches are really small. So I would say that most churches, when I do, when I like help them build a parish profile or something, they will describe themselves as a family. And that, and you do, I want, I do wonder, like, what does that mean? And for everybody, that's not a positive connotation necessarily, <laughs> depending on your family of origin. But half of our churches have an average attendance of less than twenty-five people, and they live in very small communities, ranching and farming communities, where they need to be good neighbors in order to survive. They're keeping this little church going, doing great ministries. And they really have that feeling of like the band of disciples. Like they have been with each other and for each other through just these extraordinary life events Mm -hmm. that in a big church, some of that gets kind of watered down, I think. So when people talk about family in a really big church, I sometimes wonder like, is that really about affinity or choosing to be here, which is a strong bond. Whereas in a little church, it sometimes does mean our survival is dependent upon each other in a real way. And I was just thinking of the way that Mad Max works in the second season as this sort of, you know, well, I'm new and I want to be a part of this, but there's already this party formed. Uh, And so how do you crack through that? How do you find your place in that? Um, if a family is already sort of this fully formed thing. She's the disruptor. Yeah. She's, mm-hmm. she's the stranger in the narthex. Everybody else seems to know how to get to the BCP and where coffee is. And yep. she's just kind of like, <laughs> why won't anybody tell me? Right. And they know all the family secrets. The decisions are made around the secrets, but they won't tell her what they are. 
I think it's interesting too, while we're on the topic of Max and, and that that disruption of the family, the, the scene in the gymnasium where she's on her skateboard trying to talk her way into the group and all the roles have been assigned and she's given a very clear detail about all the roles are assigned. Everybody has their place. What would we do with you? Mm-hmm. And she dares to come up with something new and go, well, what about this? And I mean, that's how often do we find ourselves in those situations where we've got it all figured out every role is taken. You know, it's not even a lack of sharing the responsibilities that are already there, but somebody comes in with a new idea and says, how about this? Well, no, that's not a real thing. That happens a lot. That scene really, really spoke to me because I've seen that happen too many times um, in the church and and in other places. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when it happens with young people, it's a great way to get disillusioned and never set foot in the place again, you know? Yep. Right. We Um, say all the time in churches, especially that we want young people. I mean, I hear that all the time. Like we just need more young families and stuff. Well, if you can't make room for them to bring a different set of gifts and to acknowledge that a young person coming doesn't mean just picking up the ministry that you're ready to lay down necessarily. It might mean a whole new slate of ministries and a whole new idea of what it means to follow Jesus. Then it gets really uncomfortable. (laughs) People don't really know. Yeah. Family was less of a thing for me in Stranger Things 2 than uh, the word home. Then okay. 11, ke- 11 slash Jane kept saying home. She's trying to figure out what home is. Hopper calls where they are home and she repeats it. Then she meets Kali, who's like her sister, quote, sister. And she says, you're home. And she says, home. And then she realizes, I think maybe her home is where her friends, her four friends are and she calls that home on her own. And I've struggled with senses of home in my life because I've moved around so much. What is it, what is it that makes something home? You know, I go to a new parish like I have been, and there are people who say, I've been here since 1971. And some of them, like, I was baptized here. I got married here and confirmed and, you know, et cetera. I said, well, all you got to do is get ordained uh, <laughs> and, and die. <laughs> and... um but that hasn't been my experience. And I don't know. I'm just saying it's, it's interesting that there are some people like those four boys for whom home is pretty solid. And then there are people who will walk through our church doors like L for whom mm-hmm. they've never had a sense of home. And how do we welcome that uh, if we've felt ensconced in a parish for decades? Mm-hmm. Similar thing to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So. And with L, there seems to be this real longing I mean, she is such a good actor, the way that just with so few lines, you know, really, she's able to convey so much. But that sense of home that people keep suggesting to her, she responds and she repeats that word with this sense of longing that is so just feels so real. And that's I cried a lot during Stranger Things, too. I don't know if I'm just like close to the surface emotionally, but when she's um, on the bus and sitting next to that older woman and mm-hmm. her, she says, are you, I hope you're going back to see your parents. And she says, no, I'm going to see my friends. I'm going home. It was like, ah, oh, you, you know, you found it yeah. on your own. Because we all have been working in the church for a while. Do you have a sense of like your home parish? Can you still identify with whatever it was that you claimed as your home parish? My home parish is at this point in San Francisco. Liz, you know it. I do. Uh, It's Advent of Christ the King. And uh, I haven't really worshipped there regularly since 2007, 10 years ago. And I suppose I'd call it my home parish. 
Uh, it's funny. I, I moved from Wisconsin in 1993, and for years I would call that I'm going home. And I, mm-hmm. I had a roommate in like the year 2000, and he said, you know, why do you keep calling that home? You've lived here for seven years. Why can't this be home? And I, I do that. I stopped calling it home, and I, I think he was right. Origin doesn't mean home to me anymore. So my home parish, I'll call it my home parish, but I don't feel it in my bones anymore. And as a parish priest, I've gosh, I've, I've been ordained not even seven years, and I think I've been in eight churches <laughs> ordained. And so wow. it's hard to have a sense of home. And I think unrootedness might just be something that I is in my life. And that's just how it is. Priests are supposed to, you know, change churches every seven years to keep the church healthy and not stagnate, et cetera. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, I'm grieving over Long Beach, uh, but um, I don't know. I suppose a part of me accepts that. My memories of my college chaplaincy programs, which is where I really felt like I was formed in a real way. I mean, I had a great upbringing in the Episcopal church and still call um, the parish that I grew up in, my home parish. Um, but that college chaplaincy was like, that was where I fell in love with Jesus in like a very kind of emotional way. And was all of that. This is so typical for young adulthood too, like the high highs and the low lows of that kind of passion. And so I still, I long for that feeling often the way that you long for home, mm-hmm. I think. And now I've never set foot in that place again since graduating from college. And then the parish that I served, um, my first parish that I served as a priest for five years, Ricardo, you mentioned the grief of leaving your church in um, Long Beach. It was like that grief hit me out of nowhere. Like nobody told me like, oh, you're going to fall in love with these people so profoundly, collectively and individually. You will love them so deeply. And then you'll have to leave and you pretty much can't talk to them again. (laughs) like and you'll just wander around it's It's so hard it's awful and it's still that parish is still in my diocese i love them they're a fabulous church led by fabulous clergy and i still am like sad person when i go back and visit them like it's so hard you know i think that where where i was formed as a christian was in first presbyterian church in eden north carolina and that church no longer exists. Like it was sold. It was it was, it was a building. The, like their congregation grew to the point that they sold their building and they built a new church on wow. different land. And there's something profound about losing the sacred space of it. So it's like when I went back to like my parents' church, like when I got older, their their new church wasn't. It wasn't my church. Like it wasn't it wasn't that space. It wasn't that building, you know? So it's like all of those roots just kind of disappeared. And I agree with Liz. Like I have that kind of, you know, college ministry, you know, that kind of part of it, that kind of let's take this seriously part. But what I recognize in my brain as like my home parish, like it's gone and I'm never going to find it again. And Mm -hmm. so it, it keeps you kind of moving without, sort of feeling like you have this anchor back in the past. I was going to say there's that old, uh, that old saying that you can't go home again. And, um, you know, when I go back to the parish where I was baptized, um, there are still a few people there who remember me from when I was six and a half years old. But, um, you know, I'm a stranger in a strange land there. And even when I go back to the church that 
I spent most of my formative years in that's right down the street where my dad still goes. Um, it's a very, very strange place. You know, that, that bouncing around and we were talking about, about L searching for that sense of home. It's, it really kind of brings back for me that, you know, Shel Silverstein's missing piece is wherever your shape has a purpose, wherever it fits. Mm-hmm. And, and you got to find that spot. Yeah. I was just thinking about that too. In the, in the context of the show, like this idea, this ability that children especially and young people especially have of like loss, you know, because we've been talking about kind of the loss of spiritual home or like growing up and kind of moving away. But, you know, kids deal with sort of their friends graduating and moving or parents get a new job in like a new town and they move or youth leaders get a new job somewhere else and they move like they're they're used to dealing with loss sort of on a regular basis. And it just sort of feels, it feels like heightened on the show because the stakes are like demons versus like, you know, the town of Hawkins. (laughs) But like, but you know, Nancy's art, you know, which could have, I mean, Barb could have just been a throwaway kind of like slasher movie victim death on the show. And the fact that Nancy's arc is solely about the loss of her friend this season I think is really important because I think that like that's how kids process like they lose a lot and it takes a lot of process to sort of work your way through that loss agreed agreed uh unlike unlike Alex and you Greg and Betsy I don't I don't get to work with young people that much so I don't uh I don't have a lot to say about that I I believe you for sure it was interesting that you talk about Nancy's arc in this season I was reading somewhere before I started watching the show about how Barb is apparently like like a big deal to people online or social media. What about Barb? And really? Barb's got to come back to life. Bring back Barb. And almost like, you know, some, you know, Pedro. What is that Napoleon Dynamite thing? Everyone was wearing the Pedro. Pedro. Vote for Pedro. Vote for Pedro. Yeah, it's like bring back Barb or something. That's why everyone loved her. She was a voice of reason. Mm-hmm. She shouldn't have been killed. I mean, she was like. I don't know. She was like a misfit and yeah. had big glasses. And that's the person that's supposed to be all right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's the pretty teenagers having sex that are supposed to exactly. get killed. There is a camp that is obvious good. And there is a camp that is obvious evil. And as a matter of fact, uh, they're so diametrically opposed to each other that they exi- they exist on opposite realities of each other and there's a good reality and a bad reality and like over here are kids trying to survive and over there are monsters right so i agree with you like in any kind of story barb should be fine but the nature of the way that evil works in this world is that it can strike anyone even like this innocent little girl 11 has no control because the monsters are after her you know greg i think the whole uh, the monster in all of its little kind of tunnels and stuff and then the demogorgons and all of that and all of its manifestations it's funny i i think of it as as destructive but i don't actually think of it as evil i i think of it as something to be fought and overcome you know the, the monster's just doing what the monster does i guess they call it the the mind flayer later on and how it takes over worlds or whatever. I don't know. I almost want to say, well, that's a mind flayer for you. <laughs> <laughs> mind flayer's got to be a mind flayer, but you know, Matthew Modine don't got to be evil. And he is. And the, the, and the father of stepfather of Max and her stepbrother, Billy, 
he's kind of mean um, mm-hmm. and kind of wicked. I don't know. So I guess all I'm trying to say is I didn't see the, I didn't see an actual monster as that evil, but it, as something that was definitely destructive and had to be overcome. And I don't know if we want to do a subconscious read on that. Maybe there are things in us under the surface that are unhealthy and destructive, and they're not necessarily evil, but they need to be overcome in order for us to not, you know, be destroyed by them. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah, preach oh. it, preach it, Father Ricardo. That was great. Yeah, yeah. I think more than a sense of of good versus evil, um, we're really looking more at you know darkness versus light when you're talking about the upside down versus the world that there it is a, a more of a darkness versus light which is a slightly different connotation from good versus evil and yeah. I, I think yeah. the good versus evil struggle um, you, you called it out really well it's the it's the people and you know intentional choices and we've seen some of that shift around you know Steve started out as as really kind of a jerk and then he had an awakening and you know kind of came around to be a nice guy in the second season so the the upside down it kind of harkens to that that ancient celtic idea of thin places we're separated by a membrane from from that other place and where does the membrane wear thin to where that that other place can be seen or touched or in this case um you can actually tear a hole in it and walk through the membrane Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I love that Will disappears over there and takes, um, you know, takes his journey that we don't see much of in the first season and he comes back and he brings it with him. You know, that idea of, of wherever you go, do you really truly leave it or does some of it come back with you, uh, for good or bad? Is that evil that came back with him or is it darkness? And how do we, how do we interpret that? So, uh, so we've been doing this all season and we've been setting it up all season. So why stop now? Right. Um, imagine if you will, your favorite blockbuster video shelf is sitting there on the wall. You've got your Greg picks. You've got your Liz picks. You've got your Betsy picks. Here come the really good Ricardo picks that I know that you're going to go straight to first. So Ricardo, what is is your pick? Thank you, Greg. It's, I, I'm the cool one on the staff at the video store, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> My staff pick this time is uh, not actually a movie, book, film, or music. It is something called Movie Pass. And if you haven't heard of Movie Pass, you're not going to believe what I'm about to say. And we um, should say the way that you set that up, it sounded like Movie Pass was a sponsor of Popping Collars, which it is not. <laughs> I just want to say this is not an advertisement or a paid endorsement. This is Although we will take Movie Pass's sure, money. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right, Movie Pass. Uh, no, uh, so Movie Pass, a friend of mine who goes to the movies all the time told me that he got Movie Pass and it really works. And he's someone who doesn't make things up. So basically, 
you go online, type in Movie Pass, it'll take you to a website. For nine ninety five a month, you can see a movie a day for like three hundred and sixty five days a year, right. literally. So it's a first. You have to download the app onto your f- smartphone, and you have to wait for the little credit card looking red Movie Pass card to come into the ma- in the mail. You get charged automatically nine ninety five a month. But what you do is you look up on the app. Oh, I want to go see Blade Runner twenty forty nine. You you look and so- see where it's showing near you, and it's literally four thousand movie theaters around the country. So you go to the movie theater. You have to be there physically, and then you check in on your app on your phone, and it'll say you're checked in. And then you go to the front like you're going to buy a ticket, and you use the red movie pass thing like a credit card. You swipe it, and you're in. But it's crazy, and I don't think enough people know about it. So if I were you, I would run out and get it now before mm-hmm. they up the price by or double it or triple it when they realize they're losing money because yeah. Oscar season's coming up, you know? And right. literally, I want to – I mean, you could see seven movies a week, and it would cost you, you 10 bucks a month. Are you stuck just going to matinees, or do you get to pick, like, when you go see a movie? I believe there are no constraints. You can go on opening – night i believe uh there and it's not matinees i've, I've only gone at night um huh. as long as there are seats available if it's sold out i'll say sold out how about that it's it's hard to believe it really happens i've done it twice and i've only been charged 10 bucks and my friend's gone to see seven movies um so it's it's movie pass kids <laughs> what a you don't see world. right you don't believe me you don't believe me i don't I believe, believe me either it really happens i think you should try it and mm-hmm. th- we are not, they're not a sponsor of Popping Collars, but um, <laughs> I, I am a fan of going out to the movies uh, and, and, I, and I haven't gone for ages and I've gone twice in the last week and they've got these Barca lounger things now because mm-hmm. I don't go to the movies. You can like mm-hmm. recline in some theaters, like it's a, yeah. like you're in your living room. So um, do it. I mean, I don't know. Don't, if you hate it, don't come and sue us or something. But um, that is my staff pick. Movie Pass. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Ricardo. You're welcome. This has been Popping Collars uh, for this time. You can find Popping Collars on your internets. We are available at poppingcollarspodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poppingcollars. And you can find us on Twitter at poppingcollars. We also have an Instagram account. We have a Spotify account. All of these things you can find on our website and you can listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But should you be adventurous and want Episcopal news at the same time that you want to listen to our podcast, you can find us on EpiscopalCafe.com where we're featured each and every time we love EpiscopalCafe.com. We know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and beyond and check out our partner podcast, by the way, who we don't, mention a whole lot so i should probably give them a rundown uh priest pulse is on there two feminists annotate the bible is on there uh from all points is on there they're really great podcasts and uh we recommend them all so go listen and with that that is popping collars for this time thank you ricardo thank you liz thank you alex for being on the show see you next time keep those collars popped yes liz thank you (laughs) 